You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 86. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much for listening, as always. This episode is sponsored by PrepDish.com. PrepDish is a meal planning service that helps you shop once, prep once, and enjoy healthy, stress-free meals all week. At the end of the episode, we'll be doing a mini interview with Lively Show listener and PrepDish subscriber, Alex Embry, about what she loves about the service, and she's got a PrepDish deal for you. Before I get to today's episode, I also wanna share that we are on the move. As this episode is airing, I am possibly in Memphis, Nashville, or Ann Arbor, Michigan. If you want to figure out where we're at, check out Instagram or Snapchat at Jess C. Lively. And now for today's show. Today we're speaking with Gabrielle Blair. Gabrielle is a designer and mother of six who you may know from her popular design blog, designmom.com. She's also the co-founder of Alt Summit, one of my favorite blogging conferences that I've gone to for several years, and she's a world traveler. She has a new book out called Design Mom, which is why she's here for book club month. Gabrielle deeply believes that their homes should not just serve ourselves as the adults, but also need to serve the lives of our children. But as a designer, she also doesn't want to sacrifice the design and function and beauty of a space. So we'll go into that. But even if you're not a mom, there's a lot more here to share as well. She's going to share how she struggled her career with her husband over the years, back and forth, being full-time and part-time and working from home, and how she gets everything done with so much on her plate. In addition, she's also going to talk about some mental health issues she's had, including depression. She's going to explain how she explored that as a blogger and also how she dealt with that while she was running her family and explaining this to her children. Let's go to the show. Gabrielle, thank you so much for coming on The Lively Show. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Tell us how you got to where you are. Well, I started my career as a graphic designer, and I graduated from college with a BFA in graphic design. And as I graduated, I was very, very pregnant. I had my first baby the next week. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Did you go to your graduation one week before? Oh, yeah. I have my robes, and I have this this giant belly under my robe. Luckily, the robes are very uh, loose. (laughs) Yeah, so I've really never had a career outside parenting. So that's been a big deal for me always is figuring out how to how those mesh together, being a mother, being a parent, and working. Graphic design has been my career up until I started blogging. We lived in New York for eight years while my husband did his PhD at Columbia. And I was working, well, sometimes I was having babies, but when I was working, I worked as an art director. I was a senior art director in an advertising agency for some of my time in New York. Loved the work. You know, it's fun to be in an office and advertising is it's just really creative and fun and high energy, you know, so I loved that. But after baby number five, I have six, but this was after baby number five, I just wanted some more time at home. I had a lot of little kids and it was a lot trying to balance working full time and being home. And so, but I knew I'd also, again, had a lot of babies at this point and knew that if I don't do something creative, I'm very susceptible to postpartum depression. And it's not like the creativity is like a cure-all at all, but it helped. And so I was figuring out, like, what could I do? And typically after a baby, I would just do freelance and take some kind of clients at home, that kind of thing, and that would be enough. But I was at a point where it was like, 
oh, no, no, I can't even promise to meet a client at a cafe. Like, I need something that I can just do in my pajamas. I had a lot of little babies, which I, was intentional. I chose when to have my babies, but um, it was a lot. When I was working, I had been introduced to blogging, and really I read a lot of essay blogs. I love them, kind of these personal essays, like some of the original bloggers, Finn Slippy or Heather Armstrong, lots of really excellent writers, and I loved reading them. I even attempted to start one at my desk on a break. I labored over this personal essay, spent way too much time, and it was not good. And I was like, oh, I'm not a blogger. I can't be a blogger. And then my sister, Jordan, who was maybe married by this time, but no kids yet, she started sending me some blogs that were more visual. Like I specifically remember Design Sponge in particular. Now Design Sponge is very long form, but at the beginning it was like a photo and like a sentence. And that's about it. Oh, I like this lamp. Or, hey, my cat's not doing very well today. Or, you know, so, you know, it just could be anything. And, of course, a light bulb clicked on for me that was like, oh, maybe I could do a more visual blogging. And then my sister Jordan started her blog, like, almost on my fifth baby's birth. It was right about then. I could see what she was doing, and it was that visual blogging, you know, a photo and just a sentence kind of thing. And I went, oh, I really can do this. Like, I loved what she was doing. I, I was so excited to go see her blog every day. Went, oh, I want to do this. And then I remember feeling like, oh, but she's already doing this, so I can't do it. I mean, like feeling like there was like a limited number of blogs in the world or something. You know what I mean? Like it was very new. So it felt like, oh, but someone's already done a blog. So therefore I can't do a blog, you know, like that kind of feeling. But then I realized, no, she doesn't have kids. I'm going to do this from this other perspective. And I kind of had this idea of, oh, I know exactly what I want to write about. I'm going to call it Design Mom. Here I am. I'm 31. I have five babies. I live in New York. My peers in New York are just getting married or just having the first child or just sort of thinking about these life changes. And here I am just like in it. So I was this pro, whether I wanted to be or not, for my peers. And then they would ask me things like, oh, I know it's hard to imagine, but this is nine years ago. It does not seem maybe that long ago, but the options for every baby thing, strollers, maternity wear, toddler clothes, anything, I mean, it's just exponentially grown in this last decade. Like, I can't even describe it. The point is, at the time, it was hard to find cute things for your baby. Like shoes, for example, so, or, or whatever it might be, a cute blanket. And so when you found it, you shared that, and you, it was like this, it felt like treasure hunt. Now I feel like it's so much easier, but you can imagine how this coincided with blogging. I could talk about, hey, here's this cool thing I found that I know parents would love. And the designer factor mattered because there was a renaissance at the time of design everywhere, but particularly I feel like America was feeling it. I remember Blueprint came out. Do you remember that magazine from the Martha Stewart people? And their tagline was, design your life. That was very much what people were feeling. They were talking about design. I mean, it used to be sort of just this other realm that just the professional designers lived in, and now kind of everyone was talking about it. And so not only am I going to be able to tell you if you need to have a first birthday party, I'm going to be able to give you great ideas on decor and what a theme might be and, you know, what dessert you should serve that's going to be good looking because I care about that because I'm a designer. So you and your husband traded off back and forth throughout those years with your children up until your blog and then you kind of settled into that career path? Yeah, that's pretty fair to say. We really we were very, very intentional about our parenting. We started our careers with a baby and then added another one quite quickly and there was a moment where I thought, I think I might want to be a stay-at-home mom, and then realized I wasn't good at it. I needed a break from it. And so um, we started splitting the day right away um, as far as our work hours and our childcare hours. 
throughout our marriage that has been true. There have been times where I was working full-time or he was working full-time, but typically not at the same time. And for most of the years of our marriage, which will be 20 years next month, it has been really intentionally looking for work that can be very flexible so that we can both work and we can both handle childcare. Let's talk about Design Mom, the book. In it, as you shared, you are the person to go to for mom and intersecting with design. So you give tons of advice when it comes to designing a home with children, which I loved. And actually, I even just loved a lot of it before I even have children. I'm like, I could totally do that. That's what his office should look like when we do the renovation, etc. I would love to know, what are your three kind of hidden gems you think people should know? Oh, that's a great way to think of it. I mean, I hope every tip in the book is helpful to someone, but the hidden gems that maybe are harder to sort of tease out. One is you don't want to yell at your kids. No one wants to, of course. And no one wants their kids to feel rotten, of course. There's no parent out there that's like, yeah, I really want my kid to have a crummy day or a crummy relationship with me, right? But those little things can add up. So for example, if your bedroom is set up in a way that you get up and sort of knock into the dresser every time you get up in the morning or stub your toe on this particular thing every morning. You walk out of the room, you're in a bad mood, you already swore, then you run into your kid and you're already in an irritated mood. If you get rid of that dresser and get a different dresser or move, you know, change the arrangement of the room, you're not stubbing your toe and now you're in a good mood in the morning. And that's probably an exaggeration, but that just happens a million times over the course of the day for anyone those little things add up in your attitude towards your kids. And you're, you're not thinking about your kids as you're getting in that bad mood, but they feel it, you know, and they really hear it. So looking for those sticking points that are repetitively getting you in a bad mood as you're prepping dinner or as you're getting the kids dressed for school or whatever they might be, trying to be aware of those, maybe triggers the right word, those things that are setting you off and then solving those problems, considering those not just a fact, they're something that can be solved, that can be changed, can just make your home so much more pleasant for everybody. I actually loved one of your examples in the book. If you have daughters that need brushes and they're often not being able to find a brush to have extra brushes in the drawer so that they don't have to call you and ask for it. Right. Just little things like that that you think, I mean, we don't use expensive brushes, so they're probably $4.99. So if I spend $15, I now have three extra brushes and don't yell at my kids in the morning. Fabulous. Wouldn't you pay $15 not to yell at your kids more? For sure, you know, and those things that can be solved and not everything can be solved with $4.99. I totally understand that. But solving what you can and just being aware of what's happening is a huge help. The second thing, if we're talking about hidden gems, I would say is this is your kid's home too. It's your home as well, and it will be your home longer. You know, if all works out well, they will move away and, 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 and become independent <laughs> adults. So, you know, it is more your house maybe than theirs um, overall, but really it's their house too and will be most of their memories will come from their time spent in this house. And so making sure it feels like their house, that there isn't a room where they feel like they can't really go into or, you know, a lot of precious things around that they're not allowed to touch doesn't make a lot of sense. Like make it their home, make them feel welcome. And then a third thing, I have a unique way that I think of bedrooms. Maybe it's not that unique, but it gets brought up to me a lot from the book. So maybe it is. And that is that I don't want the bedrooms to be so fun and so awesome that my kids would rather be there than out in the family spaces interacting with their siblings or their parents. 
So I want the board games and the best books and the food and the TV and the whatever it is that's attractive to the kids, the computers for sure, to be in family spaces. Of course, I, I make beautiful rooms for them. I want them to love their rooms and I want them to be you know, a refuge for them when they need a little space away from the family. I, it's not like I want to ignore their rooms, but if their room is small and it's really just a place to change their clothes and sleep, that's fine with me because I want them to interact with their siblings. I want them to develop those relationships. I want them to interact with their parents. And if we're all out in the living room laughing together while we're prepping dinner, our living room and kitchen happens to be open to each other. That's ideal. You guys have a pretty interesting take on the technology with your children, which I think is a new theme that we're all having to grapple with. One of the things was that at the end of the night, you guys do the rounds, if you will, to every bedroom and you take their screens or their technology from them and charge them in your bedroom. Why do you do that? We do do that. I wish we did it every single night. And sometimes we're just too lazy and don't make it happen. But we do it as often as we can. And the reason is, you know, some of our kids, we have six kids. Um, I can think of some in particular that would just turn their screen off, go to bed. They're tired and they're done. But others... That screen is just so tempting and it's unreasonable for me to expect them to just turn that off and be self-disciplined enough to go to bed when they're really just a kid and they're still learning how to form good habits. And so we just eliminate that choice for them and take the screens to our room. We charge them there. So if someone was trying to sneak their screen, they have to come into our room to do it. So we're hopefully eliminating some of that. Every parent is feeling it right now. This feels like we're all raising this generation of lab mice because we don't know what all this screen time is going to do as these kids become adults. Are they going to have a hard time interacting with other human beings? Uh, how, how much screen time is too much? Everyone's trying to figure this out and what's realistic. The, the comforting thing is that everybody is going through this. So if my kid is messed up from his screen time, every other kid is also going to be messed up from their screen time and you know we'll all have to solve this together. If there's a comfort, it's just that, that we're all going through it together. That's just one of the things we've done to sort of just make sure no one's staying up into the middle of the night watching YouTube videos. Again, it doesn't happen every night because we're lazy or we're, I fell asleep or something happened, but it's the default. And when it's working well, they bring their screens to us. We don't even have to go to them. When it's not working well, we do have to go room by room and say, come on, give it up. It's done. You know, lights out. We know they might not fall asleep right then. You know, maybe they'll write in a journal. Maybe they'll read their book. Maybe they'll have a chat with their sibling because all my kids share rooms. I want that more than the screen time. I love that. Okay, you also have an interesting take on family screen time to continue this theme of technology with children. What is family screen time? For us, I think it started with, we went from New York to Colorado to France. And New York, we had cable. Colorado, we had cable. France, we didn't. And it was at France where, where really the technology was catching up enough that we started watching our shows on Hulu, Netflix, that kind of thing, which was ideal because now we were living far from home. And so it was nice to be able to watch all our same shows online, which we wouldn't have been able to do before this kind of technology happened. So that's when I figured out like, oh, we're not gathering anymore to watch a show. I'm thinking of my childhood, Thursday nights, seven o'clock was Cosby show which I know I'm not even really allowed to say anymore because of Bill Cosby. But Thursday night, 7 o'clock, everyone was watching the show. And my whole family came together. I had dish duty on Thursday night, so I would rush to get the dishes done. They'd come and help me, and we'd go watch the show. And I think that's true for, like, families over the years. There's maybe people are watching Modern Family or whatever the, the next family show is. But without cable, you stop. 
everyone's just kind of watching the shows on their own. I liked that idea of gathering everyone together and sharing some media. So we came up with the idea of family screen time. We realized we had enough screens. When you count phones and iPods and the family iPad and my laptop, that there were enough screens for everybody, which I know is ridiculous, but there it is. And we could all sit around and everyone's looking at their screen, looking at something up. Maybe someone's sharing a screen. Um, maybe, you know, two siblings are watching a YouTube video while someone else is saying, oh, did you see this blog post? Maybe one of the kids is catching up on what I wrote on Design Mom. They like to check in with the blog or they have ants that blog as well, whatever it might be. And we're saying all this stuff aloud, kind of sharing with each other. Oh, did you see so-and-so's Instagram? And now I'm off looking up an Instagram. And then someone else is saying, did you see the Tonight Show segment that was so, so funny? And so we'll go look that up. And the only rule is no headphones. I don't want headphones on because, of course, that means you're not talking with people. That also means there's often a lot of noise in the room because maybe two people are looking at videos at once. But again, it's not really about the media. It's about the time spent together. It's just sharing a moment together and finding out what our kids are interested in. And, oh, I didn't realize so-and-so had a new album out. Show me the latest video or, you know, whatever it might be so you can see what they're interested in, what they're into, what's happening with them. That's become our, our, you know, instead of family TV night, we don't have cable here in Colorado either. So if you want to watch TV or any kind of media, you're just using a personal screen. And so we'll do that together as family screen time. And one of the things you guys, you've kind of touched on this, that you guys have lived in very, how many houses have you guys actually lived in? I think this is number nine. Nine with kids. Two of those were pre-kids. Okay. So seven houses with a family between one and six children. So you have lived in a lot of different types of homes across the world. Yes. What have you found are things you don't have to have in a home? And what have you found are necessities for you guys as a family? The first thing that comes to mind was getting to France and realizing there was no microwave in the kitchen. I can remember my family's first microwave growing up. I was five years old and we built a house. And I remember that microwave going in and we had our first meal. It was hot dogs in the microwave. And so like this was just a fact of life and realizing that we didn't have one and I had a nine month old baby and was assuming I might need to warm up a bottle or warm up leftovers. And at first it kind of threw me off. And then within a couple of weeks, it was like, oh, apparently people used to warm up their food before microwaves existed. (laughs) And that was great for me to see like, oh, I shouldn't just take things for granted. And microwave isn't a big deal, but I was thinking back to our house in New York where there hadn't been a big kitchen and the microwave took up a decent amount of counter space. And I thought, oh, what if I had that counter space instead? What if we hadn't had a microwave? And it just made me go, oh, I shouldn't just assume. I should think about, do we really need this? How does it affect us? Are we eating healthier with it or without it? And would I rather have that room for chopping vegetables instead of having it take up space by a microwave, which maybe I'm not using that often. So that was good for me to just learn that. Don't just assume because most homes have them that I need them. Things that family homes need You need a place that everyone can be in the same room. You need a place that has seating for the whole family. That's maybe not a big deal to a lot of families. To ours, it's a concern. Are there, you know, eight comfortable places to sit that we can all be together? And you need a place for projects. Even if you're not artsy-crafty, you're going to have projects. There's going to be a science fair. Someone's got to make a Halloween costume, whatever it might be. You need a place for projects. In a small apartment, that's typically the kitchen table. In other houses, it might be the kitchen table as well. So if that's the case, then you need to be aware of what are you going to do with this project when it's time for dinner and you need to eat. Maybe you put down a plastic tablecloth first and then transfer the whole project to 
a nearby room while you have dinner and then transfer it back. Or, or, or maybe you just allot enough time to make sure you accomplish it before it's time for dinner. Maybe you just order out that night for pizza and don't use the kitchen table if you're in the middle of a project. Thinking of a place where you can work on things together is ideal. In your frequently asked questions, you share that with each additional child in your family, you've lowered your expectations a notch. <laughs> and I thought that was really interesting and really honest of you. So I'm wondering, what notches did you lower and which have you kept high? Sure, that's a great question. It's true. And of course, I didn't lower my expectations for my child. I still want them to have a happy, <laughs> wonderful life. But what I mean is, when I started housekeeping and started being a parent, I had a very specific picture of, you know, what does a clean kitchen look like? What does a clean bedroom look like? How often should laundry be done? How often should sheets be done? And then as they got older, I had bows in my daughter's hair. I never left the house without my makeup on. Like I, I just had this vision of like, this is how it's done. And with each child, I had to let some of those go. For me, of course, it was worth it because I love having a big family. But it was, I, I mean, I, just, I remember the day um, sending my daughter off her hair was brushed, but wasn't like, you know, I usually would try and do something cute to it. And her clothes were clean, but weren't ironed. And I would typically iron, you know, so I was going, okay, I just had to let that go. And it doesn't mean I'll never iron again. I just couldn't keep holding myself to this super high standard. And again, the things you're lowering your standard on are things that really don't matter. I mean, does it matter if my daughter has a little grow grain bow in her hair? No, it doesn't matter. It's not like I was never going to do her hair again. I just didn't give myself these rules like, okay, you can't leave the house without makeup on. You can't leave the house without ironed clothes, whatever it might be. I would lower those standards as I went. Like my first babies, they were bathed daily. My last babies were not bathed daily. They were bathed like, you know, every three days or, so, or as needed, you know, like it was just a different, you just had to approach it differently. And that's fine. My first babies, they had very strict nap times. That was lovely. And they went to bed really early. My last baby, I mean, I'm thinking of June, we moved to France when she's nine months old and she had to learn to nap whatever country we were running around in, you know, as we took these road trips all over the place and she had to learn to nap in carriers and just wherever it might be because she didn't get to have regular naps in her room like my first kids had. I mean, would I say something like, well, we just, we're, we're not going to eat breakfast anymore. Like, no, of course, I mean, I'm not going to eliminate, you know, I'm not going to lower my standards in any way that I hope was unhealthy for my kids. Some of the stuff is arguably unhealthy, but I think if we knew that, we were trying to make up for it in another way. Like her schedule isn't as consistent as I would like, but she's getting lots of family time. She's being held all the time. And I'm just going to hope that it makes up the difference. And she is healthy and happy. And if she was showing signs of distress, then I would change things, but she wasn't. So I had to just say there isn't one perfect way to parent. It's going to be okay. That was hard. I think it's hard for me or, and not just me, for many people who have an idealized vision of what life is supposed to look like and what their house is supposed to look like. So are there any things you did not sacrifice on, no matter how many children you had? Oh, yeah, I'm sure. But I, I bet it's hard for me to even picture what they are. Like, um, I mean, we never stopped reading with the kids. Where I say we pulled back on grooming, again, maybe the baby wasn't bathed as often, but we didn't stop grooming. You know, we, weren't, we, didn't, we never did anything that was going to risk our health. I might not wash the sheets as often as I did when we were first married, but again, I would, I don't have my kids sleeping on dirty sheets. Family time mattered, and I don't think we've ever stopped focusing on family time, so maybe that's the big place. But even when I say we lowered our standards, I don't feel like I ever lowered something enough that it was unhealthy. With all of these children and your business and the blog, how did you make time for yourself? Is that something that you lowered or kept consistent? 
I mean, I think like many women, it's easy to put yourself last. I don't think I'm like immune to that. But where I got really lucky is working on the blog. I loved it. I know it was work. About six months in, I started figuring out like, oh, I could monetize this or I could figure something out here. So it became a job, but I loved it. It felt like it was feeding me. I still love it. I still feel like I do it for me. So that was nice. That was me time, but it overlapped with something industrious. And I know that everyone asks you how you do everything. Oh, man. Of course, I always want to like give them, here's the, you just take these vitamins and then it's like <laughs> magic. But no, I mean, like, this is not helpful at all to anyone. But basically, marry a great person. That is like the key. And that's not helpful if you are stuck in a marriage that you're not happy with or if you're looking for a spouse and haven't found them. So I, I'm not trying to be a jerk about it. But truly, I could not do this without a husband with a flexible career. And we're not opposed to taking on sort of tasks or roles. He's definitely more likely to fill up the tank with gas, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm definitely the one that, to pick out birthday presents. So it's not like we don't ever separate our jobs. But if I'm traveling... I don't ever have to give him a list of this is how you parent these kids. And he'd be at gymnastics of four and here's the number. He knows as much as I do about parenting and how our house functions. And we've always done it together. That's a big deal. And I know not everyone's you know, spouse is willing to do that. And not every career lends itself to that. So I totally get it. But that is how I do it. And in addition to having a really supportive husband, whenever we've been able to afford it, we get help. And sometimes we haven't been able to afford it, but when we can, we do. And that might be help in the form of house cleaning, or maybe it's someone that picks up the kids after school, so we get an extra hour of work in, an assistant to help with email, you know, whatever it might be. We don't pretend that we can do it ourselves, and we get help. Even when we haven't had funds, we would try and get help. We would trade with people for babysitting, where we'd take their kids this Friday, and they take our kids next Friday, you know, that kind of thing. It's nice to hear that you found that help when you needed it because otherwise it can look like it's this closed system <laughs> that doesn't have any external forces helping out whatsoever. No, 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 no. I mean, like, I'm not embarrassed about getting help at all. I mean, I just think, of course, people need help. Of course, of course. To add to all of this, but we haven't even touched on it, but I know a lot of people know you through Alt. So let's talk about how the idea for Alt got started and why you think it's been such a massive success. I love talking about Alt Summit. I will talk about it all day long. So Alt Summit was started out of completely selfish reasons on my part. Basically, I had been going to blog conferences. I was going to blog her most years. I had gone to Mom 2.0, which had just started. And of course, I loved these conferences. They were lots of fun. Loved the people. I still go to them. But none of the blogs I read were there. I shouldn't say that. There, of course, there were some blogs that I read, but like Design Sponge wasn't there. Oh, Joy wasn't there. You know, a lot of the blogs that I loved that were sort of the design and lifestyle blogs didn't go to those conferences. They were kind of geared for them. They maybe didn't have a big focus on, you know, photography or visual kinds of classes. Maybe they focused more on like finding your writing style or something that DIY bloggers may not even care about. I wanted to go to a conference and meet all these people that I loved and read. And, you know, I come from a family of bloggers. Jordan of Oh Happy Day and Liz of Say Yes. Jordan's my sister and Liz is married to my brother. We were on a brother's and sister's trip with our spouses to Mexico. It, we've never done anything like that before, but my brother had sold his company that we'd all helped him build. And so as a thank you, he took us all to Mexico, which was wonderful. 
And we were there and we were talking and we love working on projects. And with his company sold, he had started triathlon in our hometown. We knew we wouldn't be coming together to work on this project anymore, this triathlon. Our family does really well when we're working on projects together. If we just try and do a family reunion, it's not very fun. We end up just arguing the whole time. <laughs> it's like a lot of you know, intense personalities. But if we're working on a project together, we're kind of like superheroes. It's like we're so good at this, right? We're just like put in the hours. We're excited. We're enthusiastic. We can solve problems. We get it. So we said, well, what if we started a conference for design bloggers? Although now, of course, really the design blogger category has expanded to all sorts of things, DIY and lifestyle and all of the above. So my sister, Sarah, who was not on social media at all and is barely still on social media all these years later, she was doing a lot of events for politicians. She does a lot of parties and fundraising events for them. And so she's like, well, I could be great at doing kind of the event planning part of it. And I said, well, I know all the bloggers that I want to hear from. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I got the invite list. <laughs> right. I wasn't really connected to a lot of them yet, but I was like, oh yeah, you know, I was thinking, oh, we want Maxwell from Apartment Therapy and Grace from Design Spot. You know, we just want all these greatest bloggers. And so we said, well, let's try it. And so we did. I began to understand like, oh, well, this really was a good idea when after our opening keynote of the very first conference, which had two of the people I just mentioned, it had Maxwell of Apartment Therapy, Grace Bonnie of Design Sponge. It also had Jean Awe of Not Caught, which I know isn't as well known, but has a massive audience. And then Heather Armstrong of Deuce was the moderator. These were all massive bloggers with massive audiences, really influential. And it was like, oh, we got them all to come together in one room on a, a totally untested conference. We did pay their way there, but we didn't pay them. We don't pay our speakers. This is necessary. People want this. We're filling a need here that they would want to come and do this was a big deal. And of course, the sponsors were just over the moon. They were delighted with the turnout. They thought that people there were, you know, all the bloggers they wanted to meet. And it has just grown from there. So it was a matter of the timing and the fact that you were going into a new frontier and you had the voices people wanted to hear from. Uh, yeah, I think so. What we knew from just my experience in going to conferences was, oh, people really want to go and talk with their peers about this kind of stuff. Because as a blogger, and blogger is not even the right word anymore, but like as a social media entrepreneur, you work alone a lot. And you miss those benefits of having a coworker, someone to run by ideas and just sort of test things with. A conference fills a lot of that need. So we knew that a conference format could work. We just didn't know if design bloggers would care, and they did. It went from being some random blogs out there to, or websites, to like, oh, this is actually a community. And um, immediately, collaboration started happening among alt attendees, both with sponsors and just between attendees. And you could see that this was, in fact, was a, was a community. It just hadn't been organized yet. Yeah, absolutely. I felt that way when I came to Alt for the first time. It was my first blog conference as well. And it was really, really career changing in a way to have that community all in one place and to be able to hear from people and connect and collaborate just like you shared. So I'm so glad you guys have created Alt selfishly just for myself alone. <laughs> I'm the same. I mean, as I said, I, I started it because I wanted to meet all these people. The selfishness of it has ended up benefiting everybody. And I actually want to circle back to something you said way in the beginning of the interview. You had mentioned that when you were starting your blog, this is nine years ago, you saw your sister doing a design blog, you saw a design sponge, and you thought the need had been filled. Right. But obviously, you put your own <laughs> twist on it. And you said, you know, it's different now. But I bet there's a lot of people listening that might feel like 
they have an idea that's already been done before. What is your advice for anyone out there that's kind of feeling that way, a little bit lost in terms of their unique proposition? I mean, I think that happens all the time. If they were asking me, I would say, first of all, there truly is room for everybody. It doesn't feel like that, but there truly is. And I don't really get how it works, but one blog might fade away, not because it was a bad blog or something, but because they sort of shifted gears and pivoted towards something else. And you might go in and fill that space. I don't know that you're even aware that that's happening. I don't know that the blogger that's pivoting is aware that's happening or the the new blogger is aware that's happening. But I think that kind of thing happens all the time. You know, magazines really are fading away, except these very niche magazines. And but people still want that content. They want articles and they want to be able to discuss things. And I feel like every year there's a headline that's like, blogging is dead, blogging is dying, blogging is over, you know, whatever it might be. It's clearly not. Like this is it's clearly not at all. There's still room. And, and now again, blogging isn't even necessarily the word because your blog might be your Instagram account. You might do sort of micro blogging with Instagram. Then you don't even really need a blog or um, Um, Maybe you just have a a URL that you point to for people that are trying to find you off of Instagram, but that's really it. And it just kind of sends them back to Instagram. Maybe you're doing YouTube, you know, whatever it might be. Maybe you've built an empire on Pinterest. There's room for you. And if you're producing great content, people are never going to stop wanting great content. (laughs) They just want great content. Um, I do. Like, I feel like I have a never-ending stream of it. And still, I'll get online sometimes and think, I'm looking for something new or something fun, something I haven't seen before. So if you've got an idea, put it out there. And it probably hasn't been seen before. If it has, I mean, I think of my sister's blog that's a party site. There's like a lot of party sites. You could have a thousand party sites. There's a, there are billions of people in the world and they all throw you know, events every once in a while. You know? So they, there just really is plenty of room. And again, if you're producing great content, go for it. I'm going to put myself in the shoes of the person that's just starting. After they hear the great content answer, they think they have great content and people still aren't finding them. Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't ask that to many people because I think that's sometimes a hard answer to come up with. Maybe you do have really good content. And first, you need to figure out if that's true. That's hard to do because you've got to basically have someone in your life that's really honest with you that can tell you it's good content. And maybe it's you just having your own like really critical eye and sort of comparing what you're doing with maybe people that are doing similar things and, and seeing how you can improve. But if you're pretty sure you have amazing content and just no one else has seen it yet, then it really does become a, ma- a factor of, okay, that's valid. I mean, there could be someone that writes an amazing, amazing book and they just have to find the right publisher. They have to, you know, get it in front of the right people. So that's not magic. It's just hard work. And it's a matter of emailing every blogger you think that might like this work that might be likely to pin it or, share it on Facebook, or maybe they do a link roundup on Fridays like I do. And so maybe they might share that with their readership. Um, whatever it might be, you have to do those on an individual basis and reach out and make those relationships and comment on their blogs and be a part of the community that you're trying to insert yourself into. Again, it's not magic. It takes so much time and work, but marketing does work. I mean, and you can kind of come up with like an equation for yourself where you say, okay, for every hour I'm spending on content creation, I'm going to spend X number of hours on marketing. And that might be three hours. Might You might only need 30 minutes, you know, as you sort of figure out what works for you. And there are things like Facebook ads that you can experiment with very little money and use those as tests because maybe you want 100,000 readers 
And that seems like so many readers. But there are just in America, how many people? 350 million people? I don't even know how many people live in America. <laughs> anyway, a lot of people. Like 100,000 is maybe not unreasonable. And it's just how do I find them? Well, things like Facebook or, or you know, targeted Google ads can actually find those people. You can say, oh, it turns out I have figured out that women aged 20 to 45 that live in these three states are my ideal readers, you know, I, or whatever it might be. You can get the word out exactly to who you want. If you feel like you're doing testing, if it's just not working, your content might not be as good as you think it is. So again, if you've got someone that can be honest with you, that's helpful. I know that can be the trickiest is just trying to be honest with yourself and say, could this be better? Yeah, I think that's a really hard thing because nowadays the quality that's being produced on the high level is so high. It's so high. It's so professional. 10 years ago when Grace Bonnie was starting out her blog, there's very few people. Right. She had 10 years to perfect it in the meantime, where someone just starting out now is trying to make up that gap in terms of execution, reach and everything. So it is challenging. It's so challenging. And in which case, I would also try and remind people, be consistent. And the consistency is great because then people have an expectation like, oh, I know that there's a new blog post or a new DIY every Tuesday and Friday on such and such blog. Great. Then they kind of know to go there. And it's great to have that expectation. But even better, it forces you to practice. If I'm good at blogging, that's partly because I have over 6,000 published blog posts. Like I've done this a lot of times. So practice is real. And if you're not getting as much growth as you think, but say you're really loving it, keep going. You're going to get better whether you want to or not. That's just what's going to happen. Now, that's the tricky part too. Like, are you in a position to build this for two or three years and get a thousand blog posts under your belt before you need to depend on it for full-time income? Who knows? But that's going to be true, not just with blogging. That's true with many companies that start. I know with Ultimate, that was certainly true. We, we didn't turn a profit for at least two years, and maybe it was three. Are you in a position to work on this thing for free and, until it takes? And not everyone is, but be realistic with yourself. One of the things that you've shared is mental health, and you're pretty open about that. So what's been your experience with that topic? You know, I had mentioned things on my blog before. I mean, over the years, I'll mention something. But um, where I really talked about it, the most was right after we moved here. So it was a couple years ago here to Oakland. I just completely crashed after the move. I thought I was holding it together. I was trying so hard, you know, really trying to get so much done. And finally realized like, oh, I am really struggling. And I recognized it as depression because I had experienced it one time before. And it was right after we moved to New York. I'd had baby number three. 9-11 happened like two weeks later. Like it was a crazy time. And I definitely fell into a depression, but at the time I didn't recognize it. I didn't know what depression was. And I was able to get help. Someone in my church recognized what was going on, made sure I got help. I did. I got medicine. It worked. It was like done. I mean, it was awesome. As smooth as it can be as far as getting healthy again. And then I hadn't really had to worry about it. I'd have blue days or things like that, but nothing like that felt like depression again until we moved here and I could see myself slipping into it and kept really trying to fight it, trying to fight it, and finally went, oh yeah, it's stronger than I am. I, I, I need help. At first, I just mentioned briefly on the blog, almost like as a PS, it was maybe on like one of my Friday posts where I just include a lot of links and said, hey, FYI, I'm really struggling right now. I didn't really go into it a lot, but just said, I'm struggling. People were amazing, so kind. The first thing they loved or seemed to really respond to is just, they were so grateful that someone was admitting 
they weren't perfect. I try to build it into my FAQs like, yes, my house is not always clean. If it's clean, it means I've been neglecting my family. If it's messy, that's great. We've probably had a really good day together. You know, like that's, you know, I try to be really honest about it. But for whatever reason, this just felt to them like a more vulnerable admission than someone might normally make. And so then I talked more deeply about it and just said, this is how what I experienced when I first moved to New York. This is what I'm experiencing now. And not just I have depression, but just said, it's pretty dark. This is where my thoughts go. I think about dying all the time. I'm not looking up suicide techniques or anything, but that's where my head goes for relief is to be dead, to not have to think about anything anymore. And that's not uncommon, as shocking as it might be to someone who hasn't experienced it. It's actually incredibly common for anyone who has experienced depression. So kind of told them this is what I was going through. And not just that, I said, and this is how hard it's been to get help because it seems like it would be so easy. I know exactly what's going on. I've had medicine that worked before. I should just be able to get help. And it wasn't like that. It was actually really hard to find a doctor. I had to go jump through some crazy hoops. And I have resources. We have insurance. I have a job. You know, like I'm not underprivileged. And if it's this hard for me, then how hard is it for someone who doesn't have the resources I have? So I talked about that too. And oh man, people just responded. They were so grateful that I was talking about it and that I wasn't embarrassed of it. And I tried to explain that too, because I know that one of the key things for many, many people who suffer depression is just total guilt about it, that, you know, it's their fault and that they brought this on themselves. And for whatever reason, who knows what it is, but I don't feel like that. Like, I don't feel like that at all about my depression. I don't feel like I forced myself into it. I don't feel like guilt that I'm going through it. Like, it's I feel like, I don't know, I, would I feel guilty if I had cancer? Like, it's just not, I don't, I just don't, that's not how my brain. I feel that way about infertility or PCOS myself. Right, right. Like, of course I wouldn't choose this. Who would choose this? This is the worst. Like, it's, it's horrible. So because I'm not feeling guilty about it, I don't feel embarrassed about it. How was it with your kids, though? With the younger kids, I didn't, I didn't want to scare them. I didn't, <laughs> didn't get deep into, like, mom wants to die, like, at all, of course. But my older kids, I knew that they had read the blog post. We made ourselves available to talk to them. And honestly, by that time, I was already taking medication. It was working. By the time I was really, really sharing that what had happened, I was in a good place. I don't know that I could have even shared all the details when I was in the middle of it because I'm just barely functioning. How did you run a family with six kids? Well, I mean, I think that's one of those things that like you kind of do what you got to do. I don't have a choice but to do my family. Your body does it. I don't know. You get through it. But it wasn't great. I felt like we were having cereal every night. Like it wasn't awesome. Ben was amazing. He was picking up as much slack as he could. And it was nice because we knew the issue. So it was just the matter of finding someone to get me some help. So we knew this wasn't going to go forever. That's really helpful. If you're experiencing it for the first time and you don't know if you're going to get well, that is terrifying. Is this me for the rest of my life? Is this it? Like, am I never going to be able to be a great mom again? That's awful. But I had an experience to think that it was going to be temporary. So that helps a ton. Um, I tried to take it really easy on myself. I relied on contributors during that time as much as I could, you know, blog contributors. I was honest with my readers so they wouldn't have high expectations of me. I really just tried to be as gentle as I could to myself and went, you know what, if we have Taco Bell or crappy Little Caesars pizza, like it's not forever and it's going to be okay. And, and could talk to the kids and basically I just say, Hey guys, my brain is sick. 
if you ever had a stomach ache or whatever, like, yeah, my brain is sick. It's not working the way it's supposed to, but I'm looking for help and I'm going to get help and I'll be back in business soon. That's how I would deal with the little kids and they were all great about it. You know, and I would try and preserve my energy. Like, okay, I have a certain amount of energy each day. If I know I have a kid's event coming up or something where I really need to be as functional as possible, I've got to reserve all my energy for that for the next two days or whatever it might be. I guess it just depends on your life circumstances. But I feel like, okay, so the things that I was capable of doing when I had two kids, turns out I was actually capable of a lot more, which I found out when I had four kids. So you don't really know what you're capable of, right? I mean, like, how could you know? For me, getting through the depression and the everyday stuff is just the fact of my life. I can do this baseline of survival and then the extras I couldn't do. That's really powerful. So are there any current doubts or resistance that you're facing in your life right now? Yes. I feel like Design Mom is at a transition point. I'm really, really at a loss for what it's going to be. And one thing that I love about the work that I do is that I get to experiment all the time, which is great. And a couple of years ago, I got the idea that like, oh, I should build this up and make it a community of, of lots of contributors so that if I ever sort of want to say, hey, I'm no longer Design Mom, here's Design Mom, you know, that I can sort of transition it to another person and that this could live on and be a helpful resource to people. Um, I tried that. Um, I learned a couple of things about myself. I'm not a great boss. Um, that's one of the first things I learned and um, that I would need to really up my skills if I was going to be a great boss. And then I also um, learned that the readers were so kind to my contributors and complimentary, but were coming to hear my voice. That's really what they were coming to the site for. So once I knew that, I scaled back and I, it was just me. And I started doing that in 2014 and I've done just me ever since. I mean, I'll hire a photographer or you know that kind of thing, but really the voice is mine. But I'm still at this place going, okay, but what does that mean? Does that mean I'm going to do this forever? Or does that mean at some point I'm going to turn off the lights of the site? Like, if it's just me, what's the end game? I have no idea. I've been thinking about that lately, just wondering, you know, what I should be aiming for or if I just enjoy this until I'm bored with it. So that's on my mind. Have you spoken to this with anyone else that has a large established blog like you do? I have a little bit. At All Summit in the summer, I got to see some bloggers with big communities um, Heather Armstrong, sort of semi-retired, although really she's still blogging just without the sort of self-imposed deadlines. And then we talked about Young House Love and, and other people that have kind of retired. So it's not, I'm not the only one that's thinking about this, but where I'm maybe a little different is I still really love it. Like I'm not tired of it, but I do feel like that I just want to aim myself somewhere. I'm just wondering if I need to pivot in some way and I don't know what that might be. So I'm thinking of it. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think that's, like you said, something that other people are experiencing as well. What will you tell someone who is just starting out on this journey? I know exactly what I would tell them. Now, I'm going to assume this journey is an internet journey. And I would say the internet has a couple of really big strengths that you need to take advantage of if you're starting on this journey. One of them is that it's changeable, meaning pre-internet, if you were trying to do anything, like say you wanted to do a store You've got to find a place, a brick and mortar. You've got to spend a lot of money on signage for the exterior of the building. You've got to decide on a logo and print business cards and all this stuff. And once you've done that, you can't really go back. You can't say, yeah, it turns out I don't really like that logo. Let's get new signage. It's just too cost prohibitive. But the internet, you can. I mean, I can go back to post number one from nine years ago and edit it. Like I can change things. I can change 
my logo. I can change my name. I can change URL. I mean, like you really can change anything. You can change your look. You can try something and go, yeah, didn't really like that and try something else. That's a huge strength that the internet offers. And so you want to take advantage of that. And the other thing is it's fast. I mean, you can decide you want to open a shop and open it tomorrow. There are templates and things like Etsy and Big Cartel and a million others. So if you wanted to open a shop, you could open it overnight. You could start a blog in minutes. Things move fast and you kind of have to claim your space. So take advantage of that speed. Just grab your spot. Grab it. You know, decide what it is without even a lot of thought. Just go, yes, this is going to be my blog. I've started it. Awesome. And then use that other strength of the internet to change it as you go because no one's reading it first. No one's shopping. No one's looking at this thing you created. So you can actually get it done, get that momentum and start changing it from there. That is a great answer. Gabrielle, thank you so much for coming on the show. Jess, it was so fun to be here. Thank you for having me. And there you have it. Thank you so much, Gabrielle, for coming on the show. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to connect with Gabrielle, I think the best way to do so would be on Instagram at Design Mom. And if you want to find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat, as always, I am Jess. C is in cardboard box. Lively. Get that moving joke? If you're looking for show notes as well, go over to JessLively.com slash Gabrielle Blair to find them there. And before we get to our sneak peek of next month's summer series theme and the upcoming guest for next week, let's talk with Alex Embry about PrepDish.com. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Jess. I'm happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I am 28 years old, living in Missouri. I work for a university here in Missouri. And in my free time, I enjoy cooking and going hiking, camping with my husband. Tell us about how you got started with Prep Dish. So I actually heard about Prep Dish from one of your shows. At the end of that episode, you had Allison, who runs this company, on to promote Prep Dish and offered a free trial. And I'm all about the free things. And so <laughs> I signed up and I've been using it now for two months, I believe. How does it work? Each week we get an email and in that email, it includes two different options, a gluten-free option and a paleo option for the meal plan. So each week I look at both of them and kind of decide which one makes me salivate a little more. And then <laughs> from that point in the email, what it has is a list of all of the grocery list items, and then prep instructions. Generally, it's made for one big prep. I usually do it on Saturday or Sunday if I'm in town that weekend. Beyond that, each night, there's prep instructions for just quick putting together the meal that you've already prepped. So it might be something like heating up the meat or making a sauce that maybe wouldn't need to be made ahead of time. What are your favorite things about prep dish? Well, my first favorite thing is that after trying a number of different meal plans, this is actually the first one that I've truly seen a change in my body and my energy levels. My friends joke that I'm a sleepy person. Like my mom made my secret word on my bank account snooze when I was little. <laughs> this is this is real life. And I actually have not been that way. I, I haven't needed to go home and take a nap or my coffee in the morning. I really sometimes don't have it. I have sustained energy all day long. And I really think I owe that a lot to prep dish, the way that the combination of foods work to better the body. That's been far and away the primary reason that we've continued using it. And is there anything else you enjoy as well? Yeah, I, I really like how easy it is. 
there's only one set of dishes that I do each week. That's been awesome. It's a lot of dishes <laughs> at one time, but it's only once, and I hate doing the dishes. So I've enjoyed how easy it is just to be able to prep everything at one time and then throughout the week only spend a few minutes getting dinner ready so I have more time to spend with my husband. And on that note, my husband, he doesn't really like to cook, but because the instructions are so easy to follow, he's been in the kitchen more with me. And so it's kind of become something that we can do together. I know that some people ask, you know, if you're eating healthy, is that going to be really expensive? What we have found, uh, we eat healthy generally, but we haven't seen an increase in our overall grocery spending. And at the same time, because I have more energy and I'm not as hungry throughout the day, I've cut back on my afternoon trips to the coffee shop, getting snacks and things like that. For anyone else that's listening and wants to give this a try, Allison, the founder of PrepDish.com, has a free special month of service just for Lively Show listeners. What you have to do to sign up is go over to PrepDish.com slash The Lively Show. Enter your email and you'll start getting the service for the next month from that point forward. And you have to sign up before August 30th. That's when this offer ends. So please go over to prepdish.com slash the lively show to give it a shot. You have nothing to lose. This is totally free and it's a great way to give the service a try. Thank you, Alex, so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Jess. And for anyone else out there who is looking to advertise for their small business, you can email me at jess at jesslively.com for more information. And now for a sneak peek, August summer series theme is mindfulness. I chose the idea of mindfulness for our August summer series theme because the fall and winter are just a few months ahead and things start to get really busy and our habits and our mindfulness can often get pushed to the side. So my hope is that by exploring mindfulness from many different angles and different ways that you may expect and may not expect, we can have a slightly more intentional way of going about these fall and winter months as things get busier. And of course, when it comes to mindfulness, where does my mind go? I'm guessing you already know. Of course, I go to the ego and intuition first. These first two episodes of August are all dedicated to exactly that. First, we're going to explore the ego in more depth than we ever have on any other lively shows before. We're going to be speaking with Brooke Castillo of the lifecoachschool.com and podcast. Brooke is a life coach who trains other life coaches to be life coaches, but also has so much to share for us in terms of overcoming limiting beliefs, looking at negative thought patterns, and finding ways to observe them and ultimately change them. Until then, may something wonderful happen to you today.
so it's just convenient and easy. And my husband, who also has a hard time in the kitchen, he gets a little anxious. Uh, he's actually come in and helped me at times. And because we have the instructions, it just makes it a really smooth process. Um, so 